when Hashem commands the Jewish nation in terms of how to build the Mizbeach, and the Pasuk says, Do not build steps to my Mizbeach. Rashi explains, the reason for this is what the end of the Pasuk says, So in order that you not reveal that which is supposed to be hidden. Rashi explains that the ramp to the Mizbeach is how you access the Mizbeach. The Kohanim would walk up this ramp to get to the Mizbeach. The Kohanim wore a tunic type of garment, almost like a robe that was opened on the bottom. If there are steps, they're going to spread their legs, and it's not considered proper, even though they're wearing michnase bad, even though they're wearing undergarments, and it's not really revealing the erva, it's not really revealing something that's not supposed to be uncovered, but still it's close to gili erva, it's close to revealing a hidden part, and it's not proper. Therefore, the Torah says, build a ramp. If you build a ramp, the Kohanim won't have to take large steps. They'll take small steps, and therefore they won't spread their legs, because spreading legs to the keves, to the ramp, to the Mizbeach, would be considered improper. And then Rashi points out a Kalvachomer. He says, if these stones, which don't have das, they have no intelligence, to understand their embarrassment, Yet the Torah says that since they serve a purpose, you shouldn't be no hegmenic bezoyan, you shouldn't act in a derogatory manner to them. Chavercha, your friend, who's created in the image of Hashem, and to him, his bezoyanos, his embarrassments hurts him tremendously. Al achas kama v'kama, how much more so? Says Rashi, there's an important lesson for us to learn here. If the Torah says you have to be careful about an inanimate object, the the keves, the stones, the ramp up to the Mizbech, you have to be careful in its honor. And surely your friend who's created in the image of Hashem, and to him, he's makbit on his honor, it hurts him, surely you have to be careful? And that Rashi says is a kalvachomer that we learn from here. And I'd like to ask the obvious question on this kalvachomer. And that is that the two issues have no comparison one to the other. I want you to imagine for a minute what it's like to be in the Mishkan, to be a Kohen doing the Avoda. The tremendous purity of mindset, the tremendous preparations. A Kohen reaching the age of 25 would spend five years then learning the procedures, learning the process, to have the opportunity to actually bring a carbon. He would prepare, get ready, and have the most sublime kavanas imaginable. He's in the holiest place in existence, and he's walking up to the Mizbeach, the holiest place. Of course, a Kohen has to be careful. He is a unique human being in a very, very unique circumstance. In the holiest place in the world, of course the Torah is going to say, you're going to have to be extraordinarily careful. Don't spread your legs too far, even though it's not gili ever, it looks like it. But what comparison is that to a regular person? Rashi says it's a kavachomer. If the Torah says you have to be careful about the ramp, not to embarrass it, surely to a man, what kavachomer is that? The ramp is one of the holiest objects ever created, being walked upon by a coin who is a very holy Jew, what comparison is that to a regular person? What is Rashi's Kavachomer? 
And to understand the answer to this, I think we have to understand the human, not from Western civilization's perspective, not from the way we're accustomed to, but from Chazal's perspective. It's a Mishnah in Sanhedrin that says that by all rights, Hashem should have created the world in a very different manner. By all rights, Hashem should have begun history. The first moment of creation should have begun with the entire Jewish nation gathered at the base of Harsinai. That is the purpose of creation, and that should have been the first moment of history. And yet that's not the way Hashem created the world. Hashem created the world many generations earlier with one human being. Why is it? <clears throat> Explains the Mishnah, because Hashem wanted to teach us a critical lesson. And that lesson is that when Adam Harishan opened his eyes, he saw a world complex, vast, amazingly harmonious. He saw an entire wild kingdom. He saw plants. He saw trees. He saw everything there, and he recognized that all of it was brought into being for him and him alone. He was the only human being in the world. And the reason why Hashem wanted to create one human being is so that every human being should learn this lesson. As it was fit for Hashem to create an entire world for Adam Arishan alone, I too am a man, and it was worthy for Hashem to have created an entire world for me and me alone. And that's why history began at that moment and not many generations later at Har Sinai, because this lesson is so pivotal, so critical, that Hashem began history, began humankind that way. But it's the conclusion that the Mishnah reaches from here that's most telling. The Mishnah doesn't say, therefore you should recognize that you're important, therefore you should think about your dignity. It says the Mishnah, Lefikach, therefore call Echad ve'echad, every human being. Chayev Lomar is obligated to say, Bishvili nivra ha'olam. For me and me alone, Hashem would have created an entire world. And what the mission is saying is that our perspective on the importance, the significance, the dignity of one human being is vastly understated. And what Chazal is sharing with us is the majesty of man is beyond our understanding. And if you'd like a little perspective on it, let's use something that in our world is a sign of covet. If you make it really big in our world, they name things after you. Maybe you get a building, you make it really big, you get a street. The RFK Bridge, it used to be the Triborough Bridge. They changed it to the Robert F. Kennedy Bridge. The George Washington Bridge, named after a man. FDR Highway. FDR was a great president. They named an entire highway after him. Kennedy Airport, LaGuardia Airport. You have to be a man of stature. You have to be a man of incredible importance for them to name an airport after you. You have to be the mayor of a city. You have to be the president of a country to name a bridge after you. Could you imagine what importance it would take to name an entire city? Could you imagine how significant a human being would have to be if they would name a country after him? What this mission is saying is, it's not a street, it's not a bridge, it's not a city. The entire world being created, 
for one human being, and I too am a human being. And the perspective that Chazal is sharing with us is that if we would spend the rest of our lives trying to understand the importance of man, we wouldn't come close. And one of the questions that I think you have to ask yourself at a certain point is, okay, what is it that I could possibly do that makes it worthy that Hashem would have created a whole world just for me? How important am I? How important are the things that I do? And what is it that I could possibly accomplish? And when you think in those terms, you begin to understand the importance of a human, the impact of an action, and what it is that you can do. And Godless Sa'adam cuts two ways. I have to look at you and say, wow, created in the image of Hashem. Oh my goodness, the importance, the significance beyond anything I can imagine. And I have to recognize that I too am created in the image of Hashem. And while I have to look at you with tremendous dignity and honor, I have to look at me that way as well. And I'd like to share with you an interesting thought. Imagine that we're in Nazi Germany, and some Nazis gather us in the center of town, and they say, okay, we're either going to burn the Sefer Torah or kill one of you. Make the choice. What would you choose? We're going to burn the Sefer Torah. How can you allow for that? Allah is obvious. Of course, you burn the Sefer Torah. There's no comparison between burning a Torah and killing a human being. Of course. All right, let's make the question a little bit better. And what if they say, we're going to burn the shul, the entire shul, center of town. You either give us one human being to kill, or we're going to burn down the shul. Again, not a question. Of course, a shul, shul sticks and stones. Burn it. Don't kill a human, not a question. What if they say, we're going to burn every shul in all of Poland, or kill one of you? What's your choice? Again, not even a question. A human being is so valuable. A human being is so great that you could burn all of the shuls in Poland and Russia and throughout the world, and there's not even a question. And if you'd like to understand how far this goes, Eitzim Valvanim, when Hashem destroyed the base of Migdash, <clears throat> the Medrash Rabbah calls it a tremendous chesed because Hashem spilled out His wrath on the sticks and the stones. Even the Beis HaMikdash, as significant, as holy, as great as it is, is but mere sticks and stones compared to the Klyasrol. Because if Hashem didn't express the Midas Adin on the sticks and the stones, it would have been upon us. And anything, anything in creation compared to human being is insignificant. And with that, I want to share with you an interesting mushal. Imagine you're in a Beis HaMikdash. And you watch the following scene. A guy has a tefillin cover, right? On his tefillin shalyad, there's a little uh, cover that protects the tefillin, and it falls to the ground. Another, another fellow walking by picks it up. The fellow who's tefillin it says, thank you. The fellow picked it up and said, you don't have to thank me, it wasn't for you. It's a holy object. What would you say to that scene? What I would say to that scene is, fool, it's a holy object? You did it for the object? Do you understand that the human being who owns the tefillin is worth so much more, so much more worthy of honor, so much more holy than the tefillin or the tefillin cover or anything in creation? 
And I think what Rashi is sharing with us is exactly that concept. Yes, the Mishkan is holy beyond our imagination. Yes, a Kohen is a unique human being. And he's involved in the Avodah and it's unbelievable. And therefore, the honor that he has to treat the very ramp that he's walking on, he can't spread his legs too far because it would be dishonor to it. But the honor due to sticks and stones are nothing compared to the honor due to Etzelam Elohim. Your friend was created in the image of Hashem. If you have to worry about the honor of even the most holy object in creation, how much more so your friend who's created in the image of Hashem and who is mocked about his visionos, who feels the pain? And I believe that Rashi is sharing with us a fundamental concept. I was in Eretz Yisrael in the 1980s. And on a bus ride, it was a long bus ride, I got to meet Bob and John. Bob and John, John and Bob, Bob and John. The only thing unusual about it, that these two buddies weren't the same age. In fact, one was much older than the other. And it took a little while for me to find out that one was, in fact, the father. Oh, no, don't call me dad. Call me Bob. Call me first name. You know, Bob, John, Bob, John. We live in a generation of disrespect. There was a time when people respected elders. People respected wise men. There was a time in the 1950s in America, if a doctor walked into the room, the nurses stood up. The man is a man of learning, a man of education. You have to treat him with respect. We live in an egalitarian society where everyone is treated with equal disrespect. We don't respect elders. We don't respect wise people. We argue with our lawyers. We argue with our doctors. We argue with our rabbanim. And it doesn't matter. And if you're not sure that I'm right, I'll share with you an interesting experience. I was a high school rebbe for many years. And on a regular basis, at some point during the year, I would tell the guys, you're going home for an out Shabbos, remember the halacha. You have to stand up for your father and your mother. It's a daraisa. Not a single Risha, not a single Akron argues. It's a mitzvah to stand up, biblical obligation, to stand up for your parents. And you have to appreciate that these were good boys coming from good homes. And if you'd watch their experience when they actually tried it in their living room at home, father would walk in and the guy would stand up. And I don't know who was more shocked, the son or the father. What am I doing? This is strange. His mother walks in, he stands up. She's the queen of England or something. What am I doing? And we become so accustomed to disrespect that when we actually act with respect, it's almost strange. I had an interesting experience when I was a younger person. There was a fellow in the high school. I was a young base medrash fellow. This fellow was... He had come from Iran not long ago, and his parents were still there. And again, this was in a different era. Jews still lived there, and it was a very different way of life than it is now. In any case, he was on the phone one evening with his parents. And he comes back, hangs up the phone. He's crying, crying, crying. I said, oh, what's the matter? And he tells me such and such happened, and then my father hit my mother, hit her again. And I said, oh, hey, your father hit your mother. That's terrible. He said, no, no, that's not the problem. <clears throat> he hit her because, da, 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 and he went on to tell me what was happening, why he hit her. I didn't say anything at the time, <clears throat> but a little while later, I said to this fellow, you know, I couldn't help but notice that when you <clears throat> told me that story, you know, and I said, you know, your father hit your mother. Oh, my goodness. 
that you said that it, it, it's not a big deal. It, it almost sounded like it didn't bother you that your father hit your mother. And he said to me, no, it's good for a woman to get beaten every once in a while. And it's good for her to be put in her place. What was astonishing was it was his mother that he was talking about. And the reason for this was he was brought up in Iran. It's an Arab country. And by and large, in an Arab country, the women are treated exactly that way. You smack them, you put them in a place, and, and that's the way everyone expects. And even if you're a from Jew, maybe we're a little bit different, but not that different. Baruch Hashem, we live in different times. And not one of us would think of that as normal behavior. And in a sense, we look down on people like that as primitive. Like, where are you coming from? Like, what planet? And while it's true that we're more sophisticated, more advanced in some ways, and we don't beat our wives, I'd like to share with you that some of the things we do might be even worse. And some of the ways that a spouse treats one the other might be far more egregious. And to share with you what I mean, I'd like to share with you one yesod. The Rambam tells us that there is a formula for Shalom Bayas. There is a, an exact formula that Chazal give us for a husband to treat his wife and for a wife how to treat her husband. And if you follow this formula, you are guaranteed a beautiful marriage. Says the Rambam in Hilchas Ishus, Perik Tezvav, Tzivu Chachamim She'adam Achabedis Ishto Yosem Igufo, Chazal commanded a man to honor his wife more than himself, the Ahava Kagufo, and to love her as he does himself. Respect her, honor her even more than you do yourself, and love her as you do yourself. Chazal told a husband how to treat a woman. What a woman needs in a marriage, what a woman needs to be happy in a marriage is to feel cherished. If she feels that her husband values her, if she feels that her husband considers her more important than anything else, that she comes first, that he cherishes me, she will be happy in that marriage. And for that reason, Chazal obligated a husband to honor his wife more than he honors himself and to love her as he loves himself. And so too, the Rambam explains that Chazal obligated a woman. That she should honor her husband exceedingly. There should be almost an awe. Says the Rambam, a woman should treat her husband almost as if he's a king. What could I do to fill your wishes and your needs? And says the Rambam that if they do this, they will be Kaddish and Tahar, holy and pure. And going in this way, it will be Meshubach, Na'eh, it will be beautiful and pleasant. The Rambam is giving us a formula for a harmonious, beautiful marriage. The husband has to respect his wife more than himself and love her as he does himself. And the wife has to respect her husband exceedingly, treating him with tremendous regard and treating him with tremendous respect. And sometimes people make a mistake. 
and they hear words like this and they say, it can't be. What am I supposed to squelch my personality? Am I supposed to just like become a, a robot? I had the opportunity to be a Talmud of my Rebbe, the Shiva Zatzal, and I had a chance to be in the house often. And I'd like you to know that it was a known fact. The biggest Hasidah of the Rosh Shiva was the Rebetzin. She would only refer to Rosh Shiva by the third person. And the respect, the regard was incredible. Incredible, Derech Heretz. And yet, the Rebetzin had her own opinions about things. I was already a Rebbe in Yeshiva, and the Shmuz was becoming more popular, Tzvarasmei Torah was starting to take off, and I came to the Shiva with a question, what I should do. The Rebetzin was in the kitchen washing dishes, but she was always involved in the conversations. The dining room was not far from the kitchen, and the Rishiva was listening, and the Rebetzin listening from the kitchen, and after a while the Rishiva said, I think, I think you should leave Chinuch and do this full time. I think you should leave the classroom and do the Torah, the, the Shmuz, do that full time. And I said, okay, I hear. I also heard in the kitchen the water stop. The Rebetzin walk in, look at the Roshiva, and say, is the Roshiva sure? And the Roshiva thinks a minute and goes, yeah, I think so. Now I want you to understand what was happening here. <clears throat> I was already a Rebbe, a high school Rebbe, a person in my, at least my mid-30s, I came to ask a Godelby Yisrael a Das Torah question. And the Godelby Yisrael told me the answer. And his Rebetzin comes in and says, are you sure? In some circles, that would be called mutiny. Achotzpah. <laughs> the Roshiva said, this is Das Torah and you're arguing? But I want you to understand that the Rebetzin was a voice in that house. And she was a personality. And the Roshiva respected that. And stopped and thought and said, no, I think you should and if you'd like to understand the way a husband should treat a wife and a wife should treat a husband, and if you'd like to understand what harmony in a marriage is, this is the formula. If a husband looks at his wife and says, I'm obligated to treat her with more respect than I treat myself, love her as I do myself, and if a woman looks at her husband and says, I'm obligated to treat him with exceeding amounts of honor, as if he's a prince or a king, that is a guaranteed formula for Shalom bias. A woman feels cherished and loved, and the husband feels respected, and there are no Shalom bias problems. So, here's the question. It's so simple. Why is marriage so difficult? The Rambam just told us, a simple formula, just do it. And I'd like to share with you that when you're Hassan and Kala, it's very simple. The Kala walks in the room, and the Chassan's head turns, and he's all eyes for her and her alone. And when the Chassan speaks, the Kala is all ears. What did you say? What? And the respect that they treat one another with is remarkable. So what happens? What happens is the magic wears off. You see, that infatuation, that excitement is there for a while and it wears off, and they come back to ground. And they come back to realize that each of them are people with some advantages and some disadvantages, some milas and some chesronos, and the husband doesn't quite treat the wife with the respect that's due to her, and the wife doesn't quite treat the husband with the respect due to him, and that's when the trouble begins.
There's a study that's done that's very, very eye-opening. They took video tapes of a couple speaking to each other, and then they exchanged the husband and the wife. So first they taped the husband and wife talking to each other, then they asked the husband to step out, and they brought a stranger in to speak to the wife, then another and another, and then they did the same. They asked the wife to leave, and this is what they found. A husband and a wife, even young, newly married, when speaking to each other, are less likely to accept each other's opinion and are less polite to one another than they are to a stranger. Time after time, every one of them, whether the husband or the wife, when a stranger was put across from them, they were more polite and more readily accepted the other's opinion on whatever the issue was. To my own wife... I have tremendous disregard, and I'm not very polite to a stranger. <laughs> stranger, you have to be very polite. I heard a Banchan once say a joke. A great tool for Shalom Bayes is the telephone. The couple could be fighting, screaming. <laughs> telephone rings. Hello. Oh, yeah, sure. Okay. Absolutely. Okay, good. Good. Okay, see you then. <laughs> Fight. Why is that? Because when the telephone rings, you speak differently. It's a stranger or someone outside. But in our own household, we act very differently. And if the respect in the marriage goes, the relationship goes as well. And one of the most critical ingredients for a successful marriage is respect. Exactly what the Rambam says, the husband must respect his wife more than he does himself. And the wife has to look at her husband and say, wow, the honor due to him exceedingly. And he has, she has to treat him like a prince, like some kind of nobility. And I believe there are many, many lessons for us to learn from this Rambam. Some of them, you may think, don't need to be said, but unfortunately they do. The first is that you have to be polite. You have to be acting in a way that's appropriate, and proper, and if you wouldn't act that way to anyone else, don't act that way to your spouse. You have to keep a certain closeness. Obviously, you're going to be closer with your spouse than any other human being in the world, but there's still a certain way that you behave and a certain politeness. And I'd like to share with you that unless your parents and your older siblings were Gedola Yisrael, I have a feeling that much of the models for how you think a husband should treat a wife and a wife should treat a husband are wrong. Because we live in this society of disrespect, it is very common to see husbands say lines to their wives that should make your hair stand on end. And to hear wives open up mouths to their husbands to argue with such chutzpah that it should make you cringe. But it's normal, you know, that's it. She's a, a little bit of a, you know, an opinionated person. So what? So what, she just wiped the floor with her husband in public. So what? It wasn't nasty. It was just, you know, she was right. And when you hear these things, you have to train yourself that it's not right. It's very wrong, and it's disastrous to a relationship. Respect is the cornerstone. And that means being polite, and that means being careful what you say, it means not making jokes at each other's expense ever. And it means not arguing with. 
No, you're wrong. Watch your tongue. Hey, what are you saying? Come on, how do you know? What are you t- If you're trained in yeshiva to argue, keep that in the base medrash. And <clears throat> madam, if you've had the opportunity to have opinions about things, make sure that you speak with great regard to your husband. And if you're smarter than your husband, don't let him know it. And certainly don't rub it in his face. Because if you do, you're going to pay the price. And that price is a very, very bitter, difficult marriage. I am no tzaddik. And anyone who knows me can vouch for that. But I'd like to share with you something that at a certain point, when my kids were still young, if my wife would call, I would run. I made it a point to run. Maybe say, oh, he's very mocked about Shalom Bias, right? Nope, not at all. It had nothing to do with Shalom Bias. It had to do with the fact that I wanted my children to see that when mommy calls, Abba runs. Mommy is a person that has to be treated with respect. Even Abba goes running when mommy calls. I wanted my children to be brought up in a home where that concept was part of the culture. And I'd like to share with you that the way you treat each other is the models that your children are going to see. You create the culture of your family. You create the culture of your household. And when the respect in a marriage begins slipping, the culture begins slipping, the relationship begins heading south very quickly because a woman needs to know that she's cherished. And when she hears the opposite, it's, horribly painful to her. And men have a different ego than do women. And when a husband knows that his wife doesn't respect him, whether she does or doesn't, but she has outward signs that she doesn't, when she's very flippant and very argumentative or very dismissive, it burns him inside and it makes for a very poor relationship. Love is a mirror. When a person is treated with regard and with respect, they feel good about themselves and they feel good about the person doing that. And when a person is treated with dishonor and disrespect, they feel ugly inside and they dislike the person who brings that to them. And the mirror that reflects when a husband treats his wife with respect and love, she shines back. When a woman knows that she's cherished, that she's number one, and that her opinion and who she is matters to her husband more than anyone else, she shines back to him respect and love, and back and forth the marriage flourishes. But when a husband disrespects a wife, not even when he means to, but he's just a critical, notices what she does wrong, and points out what she could do better, what she hears very clearly is that she's not cherished, She's not respected. And what she feels is pain. And the pain that she feels will surface. <clears throat> It'll surface in disrespect back to him. And she's going to open her mouth. <clears throat> and she's going to say things. And when he hears that, he's going to feel pain. And he's going to return it. And back and forth, back and forth in those two mirrors <clears throat> that stand one opposite the other, the reverberations continue and continue, and you could watch a marriage self-implode. You could watch it be destroyed. <clears throat> and the assode that the Rambam is sharing with us <clears throat> is the assode for success in any relationship, <clears throat> but surely in marriage, respect has to be there, 
at all times and all costs. And with that being said, I'd like to ask you a question. What is the biggest cause of divorce today? What's the biggest cause? Now, most people will give you a litany of reasons. Well, it's in-laws. Yeah, problems with in-laws. No, it's money. Money problems. That's the big problem. Kids. How to bring up the kids. What school? Education. What yeshivas? Not religion. I'd like to share with you the biggest cause of divorce is not in-laws or money or kids or education or religion. None of those. The biggest cause of divorce today is fighting. Fighting. Now you can say, oh, duh, hey, of course fighting. But it's fighting over the issues. Nope. It's not fighting over the issues. It's fighting. The issues are never the cause of a divorce. The fighting is. You see, every marriage will have many, many issues, many divergent viewpoints, many, many things that he feels one way and she feels another way. And that doesn't mean they'll ever be fighting. And it doesn't mean there'll ever be trouble. I have a way, you have a way, we're two reasonable people, we figure out a solution. And the issue are never the cause of divorce. The issues are always the fighting. Studies tell us that 70% of successful marriages have irreconcilable differences. Irreconcilable differences mean there is no solution. Where do we live? How much to spend? Who does which chores? If he needs to live in New York City for his career, and she needs to live in San Diego because of allergies, there's no midpoint. You can't just compromise and live in Chicago. She wants a larger home, and he wants to save for retirement. She wants a dozen kids, and he feels a five or six is more than he can handle. He loves Miami heat, and she loves the cold. There's no midpoint. 70% of successful, long-standing marriage have issues that have no reconciliation, no solution. And yet they remain happily married. Why? Because quite simply, two reasonable people have an issue. You find a way of doing things. One time my way, one time your way. We do this, we do that. It's not a problem. But more than that, studies show that every single marriage at least 33% of the issues that a couple would deal with have no reconcilable solution. It's my parents' house, Fiontif, or your parents' house. Can't be in both. I'm not going to mine and you're not going to yours. It's a choice. John Gottman, who I mentioned, studies marriages in depth. He's the one who videotapes very carefully couples and studies them. He points out that most arguments in a marriage cannot be resolved. And he says couples spend year after year trying to change each other's minds, but it can't be done. He explains because most of the disagreements are rooted in fundamental differences of lifestyle, personality, or values. And by fighting over these differences, all they succeed in doing is wasting their time and harming their marriage. And if you'd like to hear one more... There was a fellow who did a compatibility study. And basically, he did a questionnaire, 128 different issues that potentially would become a problem in a marriage. It was a prenuptial study. 
It was called prepare. He wanted to make sure that couples who were not properly suited would not get married, and the only couples who would get married were the ones who were actually compatible, who had few issues between them. And this is what they discovered. It was true that if there were less issues of to argue about, there were less likelihood of divorce. But what they found was that amongst those couples that had the most divergent lifestyles and opinions and ways of doing things, there were many, many harmonious, successful marriages. And amongst those couples who had almost perfect compatibility, where they each agreed on almost all of the issues, ended up divorced. And what came out from the study was an interesting thing, that it's not the issue, it's the fighting. It's how you deal with the issue. I don't care who you are, I don't care where you're living, there will be many, many things that husband and wife do not see eye to eye in. And it's not a problem as long as everyone is reasonable and everyone approaches it and tries to figure out a solution. But along the way, reasonable people sometimes make big mistakes. And I'd like to share with you what a common mistake that many people do is. Many times a chassan, and more often the kala, have what we call unimind. Unimind means we're one, we think alike, we look at things alike, we're so much alike. Our marriage is going to be perfect. He likes vanilla ice cream, I like vanilla ice cream. I like fast music, he likes fast music. Our marriage is going to be wonderful, we're one. And then they get married, and what she discovers... And he discovers is that they're not one. Uh, He'd rather go to his parents for Shabbos and she would rather not. He thinks his sister is uh, a creep and she thinks she's really a great person. And all of a sudden what they discover is that they're not one. He has his way, his approach, she has her approach. And they have many, many things not in common. And that's when couples make maybe one of the biggest mistakes that couples make. We're one, and I'm the one. My way of doing things is the normal way, the right way, and my husband just doesn't get it. And instead of being open-minded, and instead of discussing it as a possibility, we're crazy. (laughs) You want to serve the fish then? No one does that. You want to paint the walls blue? That's absurd. No one would ever think that. And even though she may not speak quite that strongly, in her mind, her way is the right way, the only way. And it's not women more than men. It's both become extraordinarily dismissive. My way is the right way. My way is the only way. And that is a guaranteed formula for misery. You see, when you're dismissive about your husband's opinions, what he hears very clearly is not only don't you respect his opinion, as far as you're concerned, he doesn't have an opinion or have a right to an opinion. Well, that's not very respectful. When your wife wants to do something and you give her a look like crazy, no one wants to do that. What she hears very clearly is she's not cherished, loved, and respected. She's looked at as a complete incompetent person. 
And by being dismissive, by not respecting each other's wishes and desires and approaches, unwittingly, many couples do a tremendous amount of damage. I guarantee, no matter how much alike you are, no matter how much you think you are alike, there will be huge, huge amounts of things that you are going to do differently. You were brought up in different homes, different lifestyles. You have different temperaments. And more than anything, even if you were brought up in the exact same home and everything you did from birth till now was the same, you and he are of different genders. And somehow it is that we human beings become dumb, blind, and utterly stupid when we get married and we forget that men and women are different. And if we remember that they're different, we become very dismissive. You know, you ever hear the, the girls jumping rope and they'll say, girls go to college to get more knowledge, boys go to Jupiter to get more stupider. If you're seven years old and you want to sing that little jitty, that's okay. But that concept is one of the most destructive ideas in a marriage. And I'll explain to you why. You see, it is true that men and women were created differently. And if you're open-minded and you're willing to study your spouse and respect those differences and treat them with the respect due, you could have a beautiful marriage. But if you're going to take the attitude, oh, those are girls, girls are a bunch of crybabies and emotional jabbermouths, and those are guys, guys are so abusive and mean and whatever. If that's your attitude, well, guess what? It's going to come out. And girls like to say that guys have no emotions and, girl, and guys like to call girls crybabies. So who's right? The answer is that question itself and asking that question is destructive in a marriage. And I'll share with you what I mean in a very clear way. Gemara tells us, A man should always be careful not to oppress his wife because her tears are close, her oppression is quicker to come. It explains Rashi what this means is that women do not cry more easily than men. Women are not crybabies. It's that they feel the pain more acutely. Women, by and large, are more emotional than are men. When they go to a funeral, they cry because they feel the pain. And when they're embarrassed, they're deeply hurt. It's not that they're crybabies. It's that because they are more emotional, they feel the pain more. And because they feel the pain more, guess what? They cry. A man would also cry if he felt the pain that much. And the reason why he doesn't cry is not because he's a tough macho man. It's because he doesn't have the same emotionality, so he doesn't feel it. If you think women are not tough, speak to a woman who's gone through labor. And you'll see that women are very resilient and very strong. But it's also true that they're more emotional and they feel the pain to a much greater level. And this concept is fundamental for the success of a marriage. Because if you look at your wife and say she's just a crybaby and just stop it already, what you're doing is unwittingly treating her with tremendous disregard. And you see, if a woman cries because it hurts, she feels embarrassed or pained or whatever it may be, 
and you as her closest confidant, you as a husband, look at her and say, come on, cut it out, what are you crying for? What she hears very clearly is, you don't care about her. The pain that she's experiencing means nothing to you. And she hears a callous creep. She doesn't hear a mature bardas, a man who's tough. And she hears a mean, nasty, self-centered creep who doesn't care about her. And instead of feeling cherished, she feels quite the opposite. And one of the things that a husband must do and a wife must do is they must learn each other's needs, their emotionalities. They have to know what's important to them and what matters to them. And if they don't do this, and if they take the dismissive mode of, ah, that's just a girl, that's just a guy, they're going to pay the price. And I'll share with you an interesting example to see how this plays out. Imagine the following. Imagine a couple married for six months, and the husband respects his wife. She's a real balastas, very intelligent, very rational. In fact, he says to himself, Baruch Hashem, I didn't get one of those crazy ones. I got a real normal one, feet on the ground, Baruch Hashem. Comes on one day, and he sees his wife on a chair, screaming, What? What? There? There? What? There? There? And he looks where she's pointing. And he sees a cockroach. Oh, my goodness. He goes over to the cockroach and steps on it. <clears throat> he's smart enough not to say anything. But in his mind, he's saying, oh, my goodness, I thought she was normal. I thought she wasn't one of these crazy girls. Oh, man, was I wrong. Okay, <clears throat> you say, what's the big deal? He's a little judgmental. Maybe he's not open-minded enough, not talented enough. Big deal. Well, I'll share with you what the big deal is. Watch what happens when a week later he gets a call. Whether he's in yeshiva and she calls him to come home or is at work. And he hears the call. Dear, what? What? Dear, what? Dear, what? There's another one. I need you to come home. Please come home. And he says to himself, oh my goodness, this crazy dame. She wants me to leave yeshiva. Hangs up the phone and gets in the car. And drives home, walks into the apartment, looks at her with a look that could kill or maim a bear. He walks over to the cockroaches, squishes it, and says, I hope you're happy, and walks back out the door to his colo. What did he do? One of the stupidest moves a husband could ever do. Because what he doesn't understand is that she's really scared. He might not be, but she is. When my kids were little, my son, when he was two years old, used to play with ants, so his older sister would always, there's a bug, go get it. But Derek Klal, guys are not afraid of bugs, and girls are. But she's really scared, and when she's up on that chair screeching, it's not because she's a, an emotional wreck, it's because she's terrified. If there was a wild dog in the house, you'd be up on the chair also. To her, it's a wild dog. But because he doesn't recognize that, not only doesn't he give her credence, and when she then calls him to come home, he looks at her as some kind of nut, which is bad enough. But let's climb into her world for a minute. She's terrified. In her terror, she calls on her husband, the person who she relies on, her closest friend, and Baruch Hashem, he comes home. But what does he look like? He's angry at me. Why is he angry at me? And he squishes the bug, 
<clears throat> and then walks out with such an angry face. Why? Because he doesn't care. He doesn't care that I'm in pain. It doesn't bother him that I'm terrified. He doesn't care about me. He doesn't cherish me. He doesn't value me. He looks at me as some kind of crybaby, some kind of, he's just not into my world and he doesn't understand me or care about me. And unwittingly, what he sent to his wife was a powerful message. I don't respect you. I don't care about your feelings. You are irrelevant to me. We're in different worlds. And just to play it out for the fun of it, because such things happen over and over, when she realizes that she can't just call him home all the time, and she works on it, and she learns how to use the raid can. And after a few months, she says to her husband, look, not once have I called you home. Aren't you, aren't you impressed? And he says, yeah, thank God you started getting normal at least. What he just did was put the nail in the coffin. Because she worked very hard. She really was afraid. She worked on it very, very hard. And what she heard from him is, you're a nut. You're, don't, you don't have a right to your emotions. You don't have a right to your feelings. And I don't regard you as a competent human being. And instead of acknowledging and recognizing the hard work that she did for him, he turned it back on her. And this may sound trivial, but these kind of things happen over and over in so many ways and so many different areas. If you want to be successfully married, you have to recognize that there are huge worlds of differences between husband and wife. There are differences based on temperament and lifestyle, and differences based on upbringing and outlook, and more than anything, differences based on gender. And if you're open-minded and you're tolerant, you recognize that your spouse is entitled to the feelings that he has, the feelings that she has, and between the two of you, you figure out a reasonable solution. One time my way, one time your way. But if you're dismissive, if your way is the only way, your way is the normal way, your way is the right way, to the extent that your husband doesn't even have a right to his opinion, well, guess what? It's not going to bode very well with him, and he's not going to hear that he's respected, and he's not going to hear that he's treated with regard. And this issue surfaces over and over in so many marriages. The decisions, the where we spend our time, how we spend our time, where we spend our money, how we spend our money, all of the issues of life, if the couple regard each other with respect, and regard each other as, as entitled to their opinions, and it's very easy, it's beautiful. But if not, then it's oive. And because this problem specifically in gender-related issues surfaces so often, Mitzvah will spend some more time on each, on the man's world and the woman's world, but a couple must recognize that they will have vast differences. I think what this Rashi is sharing with us is a fundamental yesod. When a Kohen walks up onto the Mizbeach, Hashem says, don't use steps, the kevis, a ramp. Because if you're going to spread your legs, it's dis- dishonorable. It's dishonorable to the steps. Make a ramp so the Kohen can take small steps so he doesn't have to spread his legs. Even though he's wearing michnasei body, he's wearing undergarments, it doesn't look right. Says Rashi, it's a kalvachomer. And from a kevis, surely to a human being. 
Because even though it's true that the Mizbeach might be the holiest object in creation, and a coin is a unique individual, that's no comparison to the honor due to a single human being. And what Chazal tell us is that we don't understand the honor due to a regular, plain drunk or drug addict. And when Chazal say, Bishfili nivra olam, it's not if your name is Rav Moshe Feinstein, if not if you're the Gadol Ador, if you means that you're anyone in creation, a human being was created in the image of Hashem, no matter which nationality, which religion, but what Chazal is telling us is a tremendous yesod in the honor that a human being must be treated with. Hashem created the whole world beginning with one man so that you and I can learn that lesson. As Hashem created the whole world for one man, so too am I a human being. And that means when I look at you, I have to look at you as, wow, created in the image of Hashem. Could you imagine the honor due to you? And when I look at me, I have to look at myself that way. One of the problems of living in our times is that everyone is treated the same, but not with the same respect, with the same disrespect. And that is a problem in many relationships, but it's acutely a problem in a marriage because the Rambam gave us the formula. And the formula for a successful marriage is he treats her with more honor than he does himself and he loves her as himself. She treats him with exceeding honor. The respect is integral, is vital for the relationship. And when the respect starts waning, what happens is each one feels the barbs, the arrows penetrating their heart. My wife doesn't respect me. She doesn't regard my opinion. She doesn't care about what I think and what I feel. And guess what? It hurts. And you know what she's going to get back, whether I mean it or I don't mean it? She's not going to get back very nice feelings or very nice words. And when a husband treats his wife with disregard, when she knows in her heart that she's not cherished, her opinion isn't valued, she's not looked at as the number one priority of a husband, she doesn't feel very good, and guess what? He's going to get back. And those two mirrors reflecting one the other, it becomes a very, very vicious cycle. And if you want to have a successful marriage, what you have to understand is this is some of the basics that need to be worked on. You have to work on the love in the marriage. You have to work on the romantic attraction. You have to work on many of the issues that brought you together originally. But you have to make sure that you treat each other with respect. Respect means being polite. Respect means regarding the other person's opinion. And respect means not assuming that my way is the right way, the only way. There's another human being here. And if you ever feel yourself looking at your spouse as... Who could ever think that? Guard yourself. Watch yourself very carefully because that dismissive attitude can be disastrous. And surely if it's dismissive to an issue that's gender-related, ah, she's just a girl, I'm crying like that. He's just a guy, a creep. It's so dangerous because it's treating that person's feelings, that person's inner sense of reality as if it's not there. And it's very disrespectful and very hurtful. I'd like to close with one last thought. There's a famous story about Rav Shlomo Zalman Aubach, but it's the postscript that I really want to focus on. It's well known that at the Leviathan for his Rebetzin, Rav Shlomo Zalman Aubach, then 
either the Gadolador or something, one of the Gadolador stood up and said something that was unique. He said, the Minag Yisrael is, that, as this is the last point when you could speak to the person, the Minag Yisrael is to ask Mechila. And that's what's done. But I'm not going to ask Mechila for my wife, says Shlomo Zalman, because there was nothing to ask Mechila for. We live together in such peace and such harmony that there is nothing we did one to the other. I'm not going to ask Mechila because there's nothing to ask Mechila from. Now, when that story got out, people understood what it meant to be a God of Yisrael, what it meant to be a happily married couple, the regard and respect with which to treat one another. Interesting enough, there was a young man who either was at Levi or suddenly heard the story, and when he was engaged, he decided that he's going to go to Rabbi Shlomo Zalman and ask him for Eitzah. He's getting married, he wants to know some advice. Shlomo Zalman sat him down for a good while, and they talked back and forth, this and that, and some advice. Okay. A few months later, when this fellow is now already married for a bit, he's now married maybe three or four months, he comes, Shlomo Zalman sees him, and uh, he gives Shlomo Lechem to the fellow, and Shlomo Zalman says to him, Sonu, how's, how's, how's the marriage? The fellow responds, May menuchos, waters of tranquility. And Shlomo Zalman said, no, how's, how's your marriage? How's the marriage? May menuchos, waters of tranquility, the fellow responds. And Shlomo Zalman said, you're married? Yeah. How are you, you going to, May menuchos, nothing, it's great, perfect. Shlomo Zalman says, really? I don't understand that. And it was clear that he didn't, Rosh Hashanah didn't understand what this fellow was saying. And finally the fellow said, but, but didn't the Rosh say it as the Leviah for the Rebbe's in hell? There was nothing in all the years that he had to ask Mechila for? And the Rosh turned to him and said, of course. Of course there were so many issues that we looked at differently and that we wanted to do differently. Of course, every human being has to be that way. It's just that when we dealt with the issues, we spoke with respect and we never raised voices, and we never spoke with a, in a way that was disrespectful. But of course, there were many, many issues that we disagreed on. It can't be that two human beings can agree on everything. And I think that lesson might be a bigger one for us than the first. And that lesson is that there will be points that you argue about that you have to look at differently. And it's not your opinion or his opinion or her opinion the only question is how you deal with it. But if you walk in understanding that there are going to be huge differences in almost every imaginable way, not only aren't you unimind, you probably couldn't be more different. A man and a woman are opposites. And surely because you've been brought up in different homes and different ways of doing things, there are going to be many, many, many things. Most couples at a certain point say, I don't think we do anything alike. And that's not a problem. That's reality. The issues, the machlokas, the divorces are never about the issues. It's about the fighting. And the fighting comes because one doesn't respect the other. One takes the attitude, my way is the right way. It's my way or the highway. And that dismissiveness becomes so toxic that it destroys a relationship. The Rambam tells us the formula, respect and love. When we do that, Hashem helps and is a beautiful marriage. May Hashem grant us the wisdom to put this into practice.